Did you know that the largest pillar today stands in Alexandria, Egypt? It is called Pompey's Pillar. Now, originally, this pillar held up a massive statue of Emperor Diocletian because he suppressed a revolt from a Roman usurper named Lucius Dominidius Dominitanius. If you're looking for baby names, there you go. Emperor Diocletian was honored by having his statue erected on this massive pillar. The statue is now gone, but the pillar remains. There's a picture of it on the screen behind me. It is the only ancient monument in Alexandria, Egypt, that is still standing in its original location. So the next time you're in Alexandria, Egypt, go check it out. Pillars. They are important. They support the roof. They support the floor above us. They prevent what would be a total collapse of a building. You can't have a building without some kind of support. In fact, your house has supports in it, probably some sort of supporting wall without which your house would not stand. And the same thing is true for the church. We must have pillars in order to stand as a church, and I'm not talking about the constructual supports throughout this building. I'm talking about the pillars of the church that we must stand on, or spiritually speaking, the church will collapse. We're continuing our mini-series this morning called Church Basics, where we talk about this idea of the church. What is the church? How does it work? What are we supposed to do? What are these pillars that the church is supposed to stand on? Well, funny enough, you passed them as you walked in this morning. They're out in the foyer across the back wall, and if you missed them, well, on your way out, take a look. They are the pieces that we must have in place if we are to be a successful church of God. These are the four pillars that we believe the church is to be about and that's what I want to look at this morning. You'll notice there are four pillars and there are four points in your bulletin. It won't be hard to figure it out. You can skip ahead if you want to. I want to work through the four pillars of Harvest Decatur. In short, we're going to answer this question. What are we about as a church? We are about four things. The first of which is preaching. Pillar number one, unapologetic preaching, proclaiming the authority of God's word without apology. Unapologetic preaching, proclaiming the authority of God's word without apology. Now, I told you last week that everything we do as a church comes from God's word. We didn't sit around one day and think up some clever ideas and think, you know what, the church should be about that. No, the pillars come right out of God's word. Case in point, unapologetic preaching comes from 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 2. I'll read it again. Paul writes, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now, if you don't know, 2 Timothy is the final epistle that we have from the Apostle Paul. These are his last recorded words that we have. And he's writing to his protege, Timothy, and he tells Timothy, preach the word. 
just by way of definition, preaching is to make an official announcement. It's a public declaration. declaration. So to preach the word is to make a public declaration from God's word. That's what to preach is. Paul goes on to charge Timothy. He says that word for charge right there in the Greek means to exhort with authority. I exhort you with authority to do this. But you see, he goes on. Paul exhorts Timothy in the presence of God and in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Now that's a charge. That is the highest level of charge that I have ever seen. Paul is saying to Timothy, you are charged bearing in mind the ever-presence of God and also remembering that Jesus will judge you, he will scrutinize you as you handle his word and bear in mind his second coming and his coming kingdom. All of these things, his present, Christ is judge, his second coming, his return, all of that is to be kept as the main motivation for you while you preach the word. No pressure. Actually, tons of pressure. It's all about pressure. Timothy and pastors everywhere are held in great accountability because they handle the very words of God. And that is not a task in which you want to fail. God himself, we're being told, is watching over this process. He is scrutinizing the work of the preacher. And at this point, you're all thinking, I'm glad you're up there and not me. Well, let me just say, you know, preaching is a burden. I'm not here to whine. I'm not here to complain. I'm not here to make you feel sorry for me. You should not feel sorry for me because I asked for this. I was called to it by the Lord and I asked for it. It is a burden, but it's a joy. I delight in studying and bringing God's word to you every week. I look forward to this every week. You know, I said just a moment ago, it's nothing but pressure. But that's not 100% true. There's a two-sided coin to this verse in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Yes, God is present in the sense that he is watching over the process of preaching the word, and there is pressure in that. But there's also grace. The presence of God is there, and there is grace in that. Think about it like this. Have you ever had a boss that you really liked? A boss that you knew was for you. They were encouraging. They wanted you to succeed. Still made you feel a bit nervous when they were standing over your shoulder, right? Still your boss. Perhaps not as nervous as a boss who you didn't like, who was not for you, who just wanted you to perform to make him look good, but still made you a little bit nervous. See, with God standing over my shoulder, watching over the process of preaching his word, it's like having the greatest boss ever. He is there to encourage. He is there to help. He is there to support. But he's still a boss. There's still that pressure. It's a mixed blessing of pressure and grace. And the same is true with Jesus as judge. There is great pressure in that, but there is also grace. He is judge but not of my sin. My sin was paid for at the cross. His judgment is not one of condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 
Jesus is my judge, but you see, he won't judge me for my sin. So what is he judging? Not my condemnation, but evaluation. I will stand before Christ one day and he will evaluate how I did. Still pressure, but also grace. And guess what? That's not just true for a pastor. That's true for a believer. God's presence is with you. God is there to encourage you and to watch over you. He is always with you. When you're having a great day, he's with you. When you're having a bad day, he's with you. He's always there. And Jesus will also judge you too. He will evaluate you one day. Your sins are gone and forgiven. He does not now, nor he will, will he ever condemn you. But nevertheless, he will evaluate your life one day. God is present, watching over the preaching process, and Jesus will judge based on how well the preaching of the word happens, which is why we here at Harvest stand on the pillar of unapologetic preaching. We want the word of God to go forth from this pulpit and change lives. I don't stand up here, and your elders don't stand up here, to give you an entertaining, feel-good speech. If you want that, go turn something on the TV. That's not what we're here to bring. We bring the word, and we bring it unapologetically. Why? Because sometimes, if we're just going to be honest, sometimes the Bible is offensive. Sometimes the Bible gets right up in your grill, it gets all in your face, all about your life. How does it do that? Well, the Bible calls everyone a sinner. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is in your face. That is in my face. You and I are sinners. We fall short. We don't deserve heaven. We don't deserve eternal life. We don't deserve our relationship with Jesus. We are faulty. We are frail. We are foolish. And that is all up in your face. And that's the Bible. You know, in our day and age, the Bible is offensive. Genesis 1 tells us that God created man and woman in his image. And we're not supposed to change that. We're not supposed to decide what gender we are based upon our own impulses. God created us who we are. Now, I want to I share that I know there are people who struggle with gender identity. There are Christians who struggle because they don't feel like their identity matches with their biology. And I want to be sensitive to that. I want to be sensitive to maybe anyone in this room or anyone online who's going through that. And I want to encourage you by saying, rest assured, God didn't make a mistake when he created you. He did not make a mistake. He has a purpose for creating you just the way you are, and he loves you beyond measure. But I am here to tell you the Bible is offensive sometimes. But we stand on it and we preach it because it's the authority of God's word. I, as your pastor, am charged to proclaim the truth of God's word to you. I don't have any right to make something up. I don't have any right to water it down and to present it to you as God's word. I must proclaim God's word and God's word alone. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, I get a free pass on this one because I'm not a pastor. Well, think again. Every believer 
in some form or fashion is responsible for speaking God's truth. You know, God's truth has been given to you. God's word is a gift, and every Christian who possesses God's word is responsible for it. In some form or fashion, we are responsible for this. What's one way responsible for it? Well, if you're a parent, you are responsible with, your, with the word of God to your kids. Most people know Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 6. It's a popular passage. It goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You've probably heard those. Perhaps you even have those memorized. Great. Do you know what verse 7 says? You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lay down and when you rise. Teaching God's word to our children is essential. And let me just challenge you. Do this in your home. You are responsible. You are responsible as a parent to preach the word of God, to be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching to your children. Be about proclaiming God's word to your children. You might think, how do I do that? That's, that's, that's so awkward sometimes. How do I do that? It's a great question. You know what? Simply open your Bible and read a psalm at the dinner table. Read a parable. Read a passage of a familiar story. Read a single verse even. Just open it up and read. You know what? There are great Bible apps on our phone. There's great programs. There are great kid Bibles. There's all kinds of tools to help. Pick something that's good for your family. But just go out there and do it. God is present. Christ is your judge. You might be sitting there thinking, well, I don't have any children. No problem. God's put people in your life. He's good about that. He has put people in your life who need to hear the word. Your friends in Christ need to hear the word. Your fellow small group members need to hear the word. Your family needs to hear the word. Your coworkers need to hear the word. Your neighbors need to hear the word. Preach the word to whatever audience God has given you. You might think, well, when do I do that? Are we supposed to wait for the right time? It's interesting in that verse, 2 Timothy 4, Paul goes on to tell Timothy, be ready in season and out of season. What does that mean? That means if they're willing to listen or not. That's what that means. Preach the word even when your audience is not receptive. You know, it was common in the Greco-Roman culture that they would teach, you are to speak during appropriate times and to be quiet during other times. And that sounds like wisdom, doesn't it? And I would say in a lot of areas of life, there's wisdom in that. But oddly enough, Paul is expressing to Timothy, preach the word even when they don't want to hear it. Now, don't get me wrong. I think there needs to be wisdom in how we do that. We don't want to cram the word down people's throats. We want to use gentleness. Perhaps there are times we need to make our statements concise. Perhaps even just a time to share a single verse and no more. But nonetheless, we preach the word. When your kids don't want to hear the truth, that's probably when they need it the most. We do this carefully. We depend on the Spirit, but we open our mouths and we speak. Paul finishes in the verse by saying, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Those are three words that denote correction, warning, 
and encouragement. Correction, you're not going to want to do that. Warning, if you keep going down that path, destruction lies ahead. Exhorting, good job, good for you. With all patience. Takes patience. Patience in teaching. These are the things that are to be done by the pastor. These are the things to be done by the Christian to whatever audience God gives you. What do we do as a church? We preach the word and we do it without apology. There's no situation where we should apologize for God's word. You ever heard somebody say that? I'm sorry, but this is what God's word says. Don't be sorry. If that's what God's word says, that's what God's word says. We don't apologize for it. It's the word of God. We speak it with boldness. Point number two, what's the second pillar? Unashamed adoration. Lift high the name of Jesus through worship. John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. You'll remember, this is the story of Jesus with the woman at the well. Jesus is at the well. He's in Samaria, and the Samaritan woman comes out to fetch water, and Jesus engages in conversation with her. And then during that conversation, the topic turns to worship, specifically, where is the correct place to worship? Because the Jews were saying we worship in Jerusalem. The Samaritans say we have this mountain over here. That's where we go worship. Where's the correct place to worship? And Jesus effectively tells her place isn't going to matter very soon. Place isn't going to matter. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now, what does that mean? Well, before we get to that question, let's ask another question. What is worship? What are we talking about? What does that word mean? Worship is this. It's an expression in attitude or a gesture that communicates complete dependence and submission to someone or something. Do you need to hear that again? Okay. Worship is this. An expression in attitude or a gesture that communicates complete dependence and submission to someone or something. That's a pretty big definition here, but let me just give you a word picture. Why do we see in the Bible times people falling down in front of others, in front of Jesus? Why do we see that? You know what that is? That's a gesture communicating dependence and submission. It was a gesture of worship. One author writes this. Perhaps you like simpler definitions. Worship is ascribing worth to God. Is that one better? A little more simple. Worship is ascribing worth to God. Now, ascribe means to credit or to attribute. So worship is declaring all worth to God. It's an attitude. It's a gesture that says, all you, God, not me, all you. Now, how do we do this? Well, we do it primarily through song. We gather on Sunday mornings. How do we worship? Primarily through song. And you ever stop and think about that? We as a church, we get together as a group of people and we sing songs. The outside world thinks that's weird. Go to your job this week. 
grab your coworkers and say, hey, I think we need to start each day with some songs. I'll bring my guitar. It'll be great. They'll think you've lost your mind. But we come to church, and what's the first thing that we do? We sing. It's a gesture that communicates our love and dependence and submission to God. And the fact that we do it corporately, we do it together, is a unified gesture of worship. We do this in unity. We come as a church, all of us, and we sing to the Lord because we love him, because we need him, because we're here for him. And this is something that goes back thousands of years. Singing was a part of the tabernacle. In fact, we have recorded songs throughout the Bible. We have a whole book of the Bible the longest book of the Bible that's dedicated to songs that were sung to the Lord. Now, I know worship is not just singing. I don't want you to get the wrong idea here that it's only singing. Worship is ascribing worth to God, and you can do that in a variety of ways. You can declare it. You can simply say it. God is awesome. You can do it through poetry. You can do it through other means. But singing is an expression of worship that is most popular because in a corporate setting, music evokes emotion. And when we sing songs that we know and we sing it together, that brings us together in unity as we declare together the worth of Almighty God. For those of you who were here last night, wasn't that awesome? As we gathered in a room together of believers and we declared worth to Almighty God. This morning, as the worship team led us, was that not awesome? As we declared together as the body of Christ the worth of Almighty God. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now, what does that mean, in spirit and in truth? Well, spirit here means with one's whole heart. That's the idea. True worshipers worship God wholeheartedly. Worship happens with one's whole heart, and that's what worship in spirit means. To worship in truth means we worship in ways that are in harmony with God's character. We sing songs that resonate with who God is, that reflect what we know about God through his revealed word. We don't sing songs that are inaccurate to God's character. We sing, we worship what the word reveals about who God is. Today we sung a song, and in that song we sang the lyrics, Jesus, faithful through the ages. That's a true statement. Jesus is faithful, always faithful. If the song had been written, Jesus, faithful, sometimes we wouldn't have sung it. That one would have been out of here. You believe it or not, we scrutinize our worship songs. Brandon and I get together, the elders, we all get together, and we scrutinize the worship songs. We really do because we take this seriously. We want the lyrics of the songs to accurately express the character of God. And we've pitched songs before, believe it or not. Found a song, kind of like the tune, things were going well, and then there was a lyric. What did that say? I don't think that's accurate. Pitch it, find another one. Songs are a dime a dozen. So our worship is wholehearted and declares the truth about God. One commentator writes this, true worship is intimate and informative. Jot that down there somewhere. That's good. True worship is intimate and informative. That's what we're summarizing here. True worship is intimate and informative. And here at Harvest, We only sing songs about Jesus. Does that surprise you? 
We only sing songs about Jesus. We don't sing secular songs here. We don't sing fluffy songs here. We sing songs here that point us to Jesus Christ. We lift high the name of Jesus and no other name. We worship Jesus Christ. Now, maybe you're sitting there thinking, this is all great information. What do I do with this? Let it ignite your worship. Engage in the worship of your Savior. Like our pillar says, unashamed adoration. Lift high the name of Jesus. Don't be afraid to sing out when we gather together to sing. Don't be afraid to sing out. Well, I can't carry a tune. We don't care. You're not singing to us. You're singing to Jesus. He he desires a joyful noise. Sing out. And don't be afraid. This is going to be radical. Don't be afraid to engage your body. Don't be afraid to clap. Don't be afraid to lift hands. Maybe get a a little more radical and and sway just a bit. Not too much. We don't want you running up and down the aisles. But, you know, a little bit. A little bit. Now, you might say to yourself, I'm not comfortable with that. Okay, that's fine. I am not trying to be pushy. I'm not trying to be pushy. But let me say this. You might be surprised at what you're missing why do I say that? You know, a number of years ago, I used to be a reserved worshiper. Believe it or not, I used to be a reserved worshiper. And then one, one day, one day, one day, one weekend, I attended a men's conference, and it was at that men's conference that God really got a hold of my heart, and I let down my guard, and I just started worshiping, and I have to share with you that it was freeing. Now, you might be different. You might be reserved and that's just who you are and that's the way God made you and that's fine. But maybe, I can't help think, but maybe there's a few of you out there that you would like to be less reserved but you're a little too self-conscious. Let me encourage you. Step out in faith. Take small steps in that. We're gonna give you a chance to do that right right after preaching here. And let me say one more thing about this. Don't be afraid of what others think. That is a real hang-up. I actually hear that from a lot of people, that a real hang-up is, I don't feel free to raise up my hands. I don't feel free to do this or that because of what other people might think. When your mind is consumed with what others around you might be thinking of your worship, then your focus is off. Our focus should be on Jesus, not what these people think. We love our brothers and sisters in Christ, don't get me wrong, but it's not about what they think, it's about Jesus. Make that your focus. So that's on Sundays. Worship is, being an, worship is an expression, an attitude, or a gesture of one's complete dependence on God. How do we do that the rest of the week? You know, we know how to do this on Sundays, okay, but what do we do Monday through Saturday? Well, like I said, there's other forms of worship. Worship can be done through prayer, just ascribing worth to God. Lord, you are awesome. Lord, you are holy. Lord, you are righteous. Lord, you are true. That's ascribing worth to God. Reading a psalm out loud like Psalm 100 that says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Praying those things out loud. You know, and if you get a wild hair throughout the week and you want to throw on some worship music and jam in your car, do it. Music is not limited to Sundays. Now, something I do want to point out, because this I see this a lot. Sometimes we equate acts of obedience with acts of worship. 
That's not entirely wrong, okay? Follow me here. When you obey God, you are engaged in a worshipful act. Yes, however, I'd be careful in calling those items of obedience worship in the sense of ascribing worth to God. See, the Bible says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Obedience is a worshipful act that's born out of love for Jesus. But the actual act of worshiping God, the actual act of ascribing worth to God is a deliberate gesture that points to him alone. So I bring this up because I want us to be careful that we don't put everything in our life into the worship bucket, okay? I washed my car today with a good attitude. I worshiped the Lord. Okay, well, Maybe you were obedient because you chose to have a right attitude, but to equate that with the same thing we do here on Sunday mornings, intentional adoration, I think that's a mistake. So just a caution there. Unashamed adoration. Here's your third point. What's the third pillar that we stand on? Unceasing prayer. Do you notice an un-theme here? Un-theme? Unceasing prayer. Believe firmly in the power of of prayer. Ephesians 6 verse 18 reads, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Now this verse <clears throat> comes just after Paul tells the Ephesian church to put on the whole armor of God. Why would we put on the whole armor of God? Because life's a battle. Life is a spiritual Battle, And we get to verse 18, and we see that prayer is a weapon. Prayer is a weapon for this spiritual battle. Let's give ourselves a definition of prayer. You ready? Prayer is talking to God. Got that? You want something a little more complicated? I went to John Piper for complicated. Here's complicated. Prayer is the way you walk by the Spirit. Prayer is the way you walk by faith. In other words, it's the breath of the Christian life all day long. It's our communion, communion with God. It's how we communicate with him. It's the Christian's breath. We need it to survive. Without prayer, the Christian will die spiritually. Maybe I should lighten that just a little not die spiritually because we're made alive in Christ, but the Christian will become weak spiritually without prayer. That's what prayer is. It's our breath. It's talking to God. Now, how do we pray? The scripture tells us here, we pray in the spirit. What does that mean? That means that we are to align our prayers according to the Holy Spirit's desires. That's what that means. Praying in the Spirit is aligning our prayers with the desires of the Holy Spirit. In other words, we strive to pray the things the Spirit wants us to pray. We don't pray for things inconsistent with the Holy Spirit's desire. So God wants us to be sanctified. His Bible tells us that. We pray to that end. God wants his word to go forth throughout all the earth. We pray to that end. God wants his church to be effective in discipleship. We pray to that end. God wants us to repent of our sin. We pray to that end. God wants us to be thankful. We pray to that end. When do we pray? Paul tells us at all times. That's why we call it unceasing prayer. Now, this doesn't mean to have one long, continuous, never-ending prayer. That's not even possible. We'd never get anything done. We'd starve to death. What it means is pray persistently. 
Don't give up on praying. Persevere in praying. Be disciplined to pray. Do you know there's never a time when it's inappropriate to pray? Do you know that? There's never a time when it's inappropriate to pray. Sometimes those prayers need to be kept in here and not come out of our mouth, but there's never a time when it's inappropriate to pray. And praying doesn't have to be formal. It can be formal. It's good when it's formal, but it doesn't have to be formal. Let me challenge you. Develop a habit of just talking to the Lord. There are times when I I just speak to the Lord, just talk to him. And sometimes I pray in a formal way, of course, but other times I just speak to the Lord as I'm going through my day. And let me challenge you, if you don't do that, develop that as a habit of just talking to him. Now, what do we pray? What does the passage say we pray? It says we pray with all prayer and supplication. And those two words are roughly synonymous. They're communicating our petitions to God, okay? But what specifically are the petitions we're supposed to communicate? Look at the end of the verse. Make supplication for all the saints. What do we pray? We pray for each other. We hold one another up in prayer. Do you know the best way to do that? How's the best way to hold one another up in prayer? Well, you have to get to know people. You have to get to know them. You want to know something that's interesting about prayer? Prayer should be a natural community builder. We should naturally seek people out, not just within our little clique. And don't get me wrong, friends are great. Coming to church and seeing the friends that you love to see and hanging out with that little group, that's fine. But don't just do that. Go to others outside, spread out, get to know people and pray with them and for them. That'll build community. That'll strengthen a church. Reach out to someone today after church that you don't normally talk to and ask them, how can I pray for you? And then let me challenge you. Take it to the next level. Stop right there and pray for them. Pastor's making me feel uncomfortable this morning. Good. I need to be uncomfortable. You need to be uncomfortable. That's how we grow. Pray for one another. Lastly, we pray seriously. Paul writes, keep alert with all perseverance. Pray with an attitude of alertness. This reminds us, by the way, that we are in a battle. Jesus has this same idea in Luke 21, 36. He says, but stay awake at all times, praying that you might have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Don't be distracted by the things of life that you forget to pray that you forget that you're in a battle, be aware that the enemy is out there. He will not let up. And when you sense his evil hand, pray. When you see him at work, pray. Stay alert, church, and pray. And while we're on the topic of prayer, what is one of the best things to pray about? Our witness. Our fourth and last point this morning is this, unafraid witness. Share the good news of Jesus Christ with boldness. The rest of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20 says, and also for me, we're still talking about prayer here, and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Isn't it interesting 
If you don't know this, when Paul wrote Ephesians, he was in prison. That's why he says in chains. Isn't it interesting that while Paul is in prison, he's writing this epistle, what does he want prayer for? What would you want prayer for in prison? Get me out of here. Paul doesn't ask for that. He says, pray for me for boldness to communicate the gospel. Why? Because Paul views his imprisonment as an opportunity for the gospel. It's a chance to proclaim the gospel. Paul says, pray for me to be bold, to open my mouth, to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Now, who in this room could not echo that prayer? Who in this room could not say, pray for me to be bold, to open my mouth, to proclaim the mystery of the gospel to my coworkers, to my neighbors, to my friends, to my unsaved family? We believe in unafraid witness that the church is called to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. What does that mean? What is the mystery of the gospel? It's the message of salvation, quite simply. It's that we've, it's what we've been learning about through our series in Mark. The gospel is the good news that is from God, about God, and leads to salvation. That's the mystery of the gospel. Paul calls it a mystery because in the Old Testament, God's plan of sending Christ to die in our place and rise from the dead wasn't clearly laid out. Yes, there were hints to it all along the way through the Old Testament. There were hints to it, but it wasn't clearly laid out. It was a mystery. And we get to the New Testament, and now the plan is clear. And it's our job to proclaim this plan, to declare this message of salvation. How does this happen? It happens within your sphere of influence. It happens as you open your mouth and you speak about the gospel to those you are near. You know, as elders, we recently read a book that was simply called Evangelism. And in that book, the author, J. Max Stiles, he writes this. Most people come to faith through the influence of family members, small group studies, or a conversion or a conversation with a friend after a church service, Christians intentionally talking about the gospel. How are they going to hear if no one brings the news? I want to be a part of a church culture that is naturally built in evangelism that we intentionally together as the bride of Christ talk to others about the gospel. Now, you might be asking, that sounds great, but how do we get there? How do we as a church become natural evangelists? Have you ever watched a great sports game or a great movie or you read a great book and you loved it so much that when you were finished, what was the first thing you wanted to do? Tell someone. You're so excited about it. It's all you can think about it, and you want to get out there, and you want to tell somebody about this. How do we get that way with the gospel? We have to be enamored with the gospel. We have to completely realize how utterly lost, how utterly broken, how utterly sinful, how utterly horrendous we are and then look to our Savior and see what he did for us and see how loved and how cherished and how desired we are in his sight. 
We have to be crushed with the truth of who we are and the truth of who he is, and then we will be excited about the gospel, and we can't wait to tell someone about it. Get enamored with the gospel. Pray for that in your life. We are ambassadors, just like Paul. An ambassador has been granted the authority to speak for the one who sent them. You are to speak for the one who sent you. Where do we do this? We do this again within our sphere of influence, within those that we come in contact with regularly. But you know what else? We get opportunities to do this at times outside of our sphere of influence. It's what George and Derry are doing right now. And in just two weeks, you have an opportunity to do that with our Vacation Bible School. VBS is a great way to share the gospel with children. How can you help? How can you be a part of that? Get excited about the gospel and then go be ambassadors because you are. And speaking about the gospel. If you're here this morning and you don't know what I'm talking about, if you're here this morning and you might know about Jesus, but you don't know Jesus, you don't have a relationship with him, come and talk to me after the service. I want to share with you the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those are the four pillars, preaching, worship, prayer, and evangelism. Those are the things that we stand on as harvest decatur. Now, maybe you might be thinking, well, is that just it? Is that all we do, just those four pillars? That's what the Bible tells us to do. We do what the Bible tells us to do. We are intentional about that. Honestly, our job as a church is quite simple. It's a struggle, but it's quite simple. As Harvest Decatur, could we do these four things better? Yes. I'll be the first to admit that. Yes, we could. Are we perfect in what we do? Absolutely not. Do we need our congregation to pray for one another and pray for our leadership as we pray for each other that we could be a better church and do these four things with greater accuracy? Absolutely. Will us as a church doing these things have an impact on our city that just might change some lives? You better believe it. Harvest Decatur exists to glorify God by making mature believers who worship, walk with, and work for Christ. And how do we do that? By standing on these four pillars, preaching, worship, prayer, and evangelism. Pillars hold up the structure. These pillars spiritually hold up the structure of the church. And if we're going to stand, we need to stand on those and nothing else. We can't make this up. We can't pretend we can't try to have a lot of good ideas. We have to stand on what God says we should stand on. Now, why do we do this? I mean, let's just be honest for a second. These four pillars are a lot of work, and they're uncomfortable at times. Why can't, why can't the church just be a great community? You know, why can't we just get together and have potlucks and laugh and connect and just have fun? Why can't we just do that? Because we're on a mission, just like Christ was on a mission. He was sent so that you and I could be saved and be a part of this thing called the church. It's not a social club. The church is the beacon for a dying world. 
This world is on a collision course toward hell for all of eternity, but our Savior made it possible for some to be pulled out of that collision course and become his disciples and grow in their faith, and the church is his mechanism to do that. I told you last week that Jesus is our founder, that this thing called the church is his brainchild. So in order for us as individuals and in order for us as a church to do these things better, we must look to our Savior. We must look to our founder and we must be in awe over his precious death and resurrection. And only then will we be enamored with him to the point that we can't help but preach, worship, pray, and witness. You belong to Christ. Let that motivate you to do these four things as his church. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we as your church have been given specific responsibilities. We call them the four pillars. We believe what you want your church to be about is preaching, worship, prayer, and evangelism. Lord, we cannot do these things in our own strength. We need you to strengthen us to do what is necessary in order for this church to stand. Lord, we are here to make disciples. And that happens when we, your church, is about your business. May we, your disciples, grow closer to you and closer to one another And may we be a beacon of hope to this city which desperately needs the gospel. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.